Hey, Forge family. We are about to move into podcast number four on the life of Samuel. But let's look back at podcast three first. Recall, we had to zoom in on Samuel as he ministered before the Lord under the tutelage of Eli, the high priest. And then we had to zoom out a lot to see what vile things were going on around Samuel in the, te- in the tabernacle complex as Samuel was growing up. In and out, in and out. It, it, this revealed uh, what was going on uh, with the sons of Eli, who were really worthless men, wearing the garments of the priests of the Lord. Eli had tried to reason with his sons, but to no avail. They ignored him and kept on with their wicked ways. Ultimately, the Lord sent a prophet to confront Eli, for he was complicit in the greed and immorality of his sons. God says to Eli, you're done, and your family will cease to exist. Ford's family, we too are surrounded by a culture that is given over to self-satisfaction, to self-pleasure, to a self-view that finds itself good. And my exhortation last podcast was to keep following Jesus Keep serving God, extending the kingdom of God in the midst of this new Canaan miasma around us. And again, there was a call to pray for your neighbors, co-workers, friends, all of those that you come in contact with, praying God's grace on them as they act like Hophni and Phinehas, and even like Eli. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, lift our eyes up to you, lift our hearts up to you as we obey and follow you. We look to you for provision, for instruction, for protection from the enemy. We would know you, Lord, and serve before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, family, gather up your notebooks and pens and a Bible that's turned open to 1 Samuel chapter 3. And we begin podcast number 4. Just as an extension of chapter 2, we see Samuel serving before the Lord with Eli guiding him in tabernacle protocols. Samuel is now perhaps 11, 12 years old. In the Hebrew word, that's na'er. Um, he's a lad, he's a youth, he's a young man. And as such, he can take on more weighty ministry responsibilities. Eli has filled the role of surrogate father. The text of chapter 3, verse 1 says that the word of the Lord was rare or precious in its rarity. Literally, there were no visions being spread abroad. For 400 years, the time passed between Joshua's death and now into the end of the period of the judges, only three unnamed prophets had spoken forth in that time frame. Now, why did God stop speaking? Israel had rebelled and went off after the Baal, serving the Canaanite pantheon. God had warned them about that particular sin of unfaithfulness and the degradation of their destiny. But now, they were just like the lost. Where there is sin, God does not speak. And society and culture 
degenerate. Sin separates man from God and God from man. The text speaks of how rare and how precious the word of the Lord was. And there's quite a list in scripture of what God deems rare and precious. You see, he says the word of God is precious. The soul of man is precious. The redemption of that soul is precious. The death of the saints is precious. The ointment poured out on the head of Jesus in Matthew 26, that was called precious. The wisdom of God is precious. A good name is precious. Sons are precious. Saints are precious. Jesus Christ himself is precious. The trial of your faith is precious. The blood of Jesus is precious. Your faith in him is precious. And the promises of God are precious. In verse 2, we find Eli laid out for sleep. And it notes that he was uh, an elderly guy. He, He had encroaching blindness. He's a very old man. The text even time stamps the events to follow. The golden lampstand that stood in the holy place outside the, the tapestry that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that golden lamp had to be burning constantly, giving forth its light constantly. And at this moment of the text, the light was still burning. It had not gone out. And you see, it was an inordinance that it was to burn continuously, only being filled with clear olive oil and having wicks trimmed and relit evening and dawn, in the evening and at dawn. So here we have a pre-dawn moment. The tabernacle had been in Shiloh for 40 years, and it is speculated that semi-permanent structures had grown up around the meeting tent of God, providing residences for priests, Levites, and servants, and storage space for tithes and offerings. Here we see Eli in his place, but we also see Samuel laying down in the temple complex in immediate proximity to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of God resided. Now, the Ark was an acacia wood box, the lid, that housed the rod of Aaron and the tablets of the law. It was carried before the people of Israel, and it was totally covered with pure gold, both inside and outside. And on the lid were two cherubim who bowed over the lid, on which was called the mercy seat. And it was said that the Lord God was enthroned between the cherubim. That gold box, if you will, symbolized and welcomed God's presence. And it was in some way close to where Samuel chose to sleep. In verse 4, the audible voice of God. You ever heard that? You ever heard God speak directly to you? So here it is. The voice of God awakens Samuel. And it snatches him from sleep. Samuel jumps up and runs to Eli saying, Here I am. You called me. And Eli responds, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Now, Samuel did not know the Lord after 12 years in the tabernacle. 12 years with Eli. The text in verse 7 says, The Lord had not revealed himself 
to Samuel yet. That's a very sobering point right there. We'll come back to that. <clears throat> the, the scene here is repeated two more times. Samuel awakens, runs, and calls out to Eli, and Eli sends him back to bed. But Eli finally gets it. You know, this must be a God thing. And when Samuel appears the third time, Eli instructs his son, if you will, to speak these words, quote, Speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening, and sends himself and sends him off to bed again for the third time. Now in verse 10, the shocking, the unbelievable takes place. The Lord God comes, and the Hebrew here says that God came from where he was to where Samuel is. The Lord God came and stood in bodily form and called again, Samuel, Samuel. Three times the word again has been used. And the Hebrew word for, it, it speaks it, it's, it's a word that, uh, it speaks about addition of increase. So there is a numerical stacking, if, almost a multiplication, if you will, of the, the number of times Samuel has heard his name called. And it is not the same word Eli uses to send Samuel back to bed again. This word, Yasaf, is attached to God's activity. Samuel responds to the figure standing before him, much like Abraham, Jacob, and Moses before him. Amazing. God's presence is in Shiloh in spite of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. You see, the Lord goes wherever he deems. It could be the vilest place on earth, and he's there. See, there's quite a list of God calling out the names of his people, his servants, and he calls them out twice, as in here, where he says, Samuel, Samuel. He did it for Abraham, for Jacob, for Moses, for Martha, for Simon Peter, and for Saul of Tarsus. Now, Samuel's new at this. He did not yet recognize what was happening. The Lord gives Samuel a message that he is about to do a thing in Israel of such magnitude that all those who hear of it, their ears will tingle or quiver. Twice more in scripture, that explicit wording is used. Now, once in 2 Kings 21, when the judgment on the sins of King Manasseh is announced, and in Jeremiah 19, when God sends his prophet to buy a pot and take it out to the defiled, utterly defiled Valley of Hinnom, outside the walls of Jerusalem, to announce the desecration of all Judah and Jerusalem, and it will be as if the pot has been broken, and he shatters this pot, breaks it. All ears will tingle. The Lord goes on saying to Samuel what was said by the prophet God had already sent to Eli. Judgment is coming. Hophni and Phinehas had made themselves vile, contemptible to God. And Eli was unable to alter their sinful trajectory, himself being complicit in the wrongdoing. There would be no sin offering that could make a way back for Eli's whole family. Samuel's ears are tingling. He goes back to bed, but he was not told to share the message with anyone. It's just running around inside of him, and I doubt that he slept. At dawn in the morning, 
Samuel rises and opens the door of the tabernacle complex. See, he's now filling the role of a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. And it says he was afraid to tell Eli of the message. <clears throat> and in fact, the Lord had not told him to tell anyone. This was God's way to call and to prep his servant, his prophet, Samuel. But Eli wanted to know what God had said to Samuel. He knew that when a prophet has a message, it must be delivered. So Eli calls, and Samuel is right there. He says, here am I. Eli asks directly, what were the words? Literally, what are all the words from God? And he adds a towering warning to young Samuel. If he holds back, if he doesn't tell it all, then Eli says, may God do to you, Samuel, and more if you hide anything from me. See, Samuel, this was a new thing. This was a new word. It, is not a, it was not a new word to Eli. Eli had a sense that this was going to be really bad. And so he could say to young Samuel, if you hold back, may it be done to you and more. <clears throat> Samuel told it all. He held, nothing, he held nothing back. He didn't soften or bend any part of the prophetic word regarding Eli, who he loved. But this was about Eli and his family and the coming judgment of God. And Eli responds, quote, it is the Lord. Paren, just as I suspected, close paren, let him, let the Lord do what seems good to him. In that little encounter, God used Eli to instruct Samuel that he might be faithful to tell all of what God was speaking and to never withhold or soften the word of the Lord. And Eli's response to to God's message, acted to teach Samuel that what God speaks and sends and does is perfect. God will do what is good in his own time and in his own ways. Verse 19, so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. That phrase, the Lord is with him, is the same as of God's relationships that he had with Ishmael and with Abraham in Genesis 21, with Jacob in, in Genesis 28, with Joseph in Genesis 39, with Moses and Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, with David in 2 Samuel 5, with Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20, with Jesus in John chapter 3, and with Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy. Verse 19 concludes with the phrase that the Lord did not let any of Samuel's words fail, or literally none of them fell to the ground. Okay? Because Samuel's words were the Lord's words. In verse 20, like Moses before him, Samuel was recognized as an established prophet of Yahweh from Dan city in the far north in the shadow of Lebanon's Mount Hermon, all the way to the south into the Negev Desert to Beersheba, where his ancestor Abraham had sunk wells up and down the breadth and the whole breadth of Israel, all recognized Samuel was an established prophet of the Lord. Verse 21, that the Lord did it again. 
he appears a second time in Shiloh to reveal himself to Samuel. The Lord does not leave Samuel to figure out how to be a prophet on his own, to somehow rely on his striking looks as a Nazarite or his personal insights or his charisma and favor with the people or his leadership skills. None of the above, you see. Remember, God's words were the words in the mouth of Samuel. Now, here in chapter 3, we have a radical turning away from the time of the judges. Eli himself had been doing what was right in his own eyes and was about to be judged for it. Eli could only impart liturgy, protocols, and pass down priestly garments to his sons. He did not introduce them to a knowledge of the Lord. Whoa. As a surrogate father, Samuel, he had brought Samuel along as far as he could, but he had not introduced Samuel to a knowledge of the Lord. And then God stepped in to create a pivot point in Israel's history. All right, Ford's family. Let me say that um, if Eli had repented and called out to God, if Eli had bowed himself before the Lord God, I think the Lord might have lifted that curse on his family. That's just God and how he handles grace. If God did it to Manasseh, okay, Manasseh, of whom God said, your sins are greater than all those of the Canaanites. And if God did it to David, who sinned with, with uh, infidelity and with murder, and David, re David repented and God restored him, how much more would God have forgiven Eli? But Eli didn't repent. All right, Forge, we've already been in discussion in our multi-generational community of how to equip young children to minister to the Lord and how to come to know him. That's going to continue, okay? That's an ongoing need in our midst, and it will produce ongoing blessing in our midst. Now, chapter 3 has used the word call 11 times, and as parents and grandparents, spiritual mothers and fathers, we are poised as a, as a church, to intently focus on how to prepare children and adults to hear the call of God and how to respond to it. If we're to live out godly lives in the midst of a new Canaan culture, in the midst of our profligate, selfish culture, we need the Lord's presence to pivot us as parents, to teach us how to walk before him so we can disciple our children and spiritual children, birthed by Holy Spirit. Now, we've seen Jonathan rise in our midst from a babe in arms to a young man, taught by his parents about the Lord, and given opportunity in our midst for his spiritual gifts to show, to grow, and to shine. That's a good template. It's a beginning, again, place with the same added weight of the same multiplication of again from the Lord. Let's pray. Holy One, we, like Samuel, would draw near to your presence and we long to be better disciples of those natural and spiritual children you birth here in Forge Church. Lead on, Lord God, Almighty.
Amen. All right, Forge family. We'll see you soon. I love you. God bless.